Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number five in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday, March the 6th. First, I'll talk to lawyer Rob Bryden, who will provide commentary on what franchisees should do if they find themselves in a dispute against a franchisor. And then I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Avery about the impact of the coronavirus on the global economy. But first, let's talk to Rob Bryden. Uh, Rob, why are we now having so many disputes between franchisees and franchisors? I mean, on a simplistic level, there's a lot more franchises around these days. And I think there's been a few high-profile ones which have come undone through through bad management. So I guess those two factors contribute to us seeing a lot more disputes these days, more franchises and some badly run high-profile ones. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze... Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Uh, can you give me some examples? Yeah, well, I, I think if you look at, at the moment... Jump, swim, school, swim, loops, um, there's some serious problems there. ACCC is involved and there's an administrator to one of the companies. There's a lot of disputes there. The, the, the system was a faulty system. In, in, it seems to me the business itself, the, the idea, the concept was good, but it's been run very, very badly. And the uh, effect on that has been franchisees, a lot of franchisees that are facing losing a lot of money. 
Then we've got the, of course, the retail food group, which has been uh, in the headlines recently, where massive expansion, overexpansion, possibly uh, that's that's something for the business experts to look at. But that expansion put uh, financial pressures on them, and, and the whole thing's just gone bad. So yeah, I, I guess there's a couple of high-profile examples there that a, a good basic business idea has just um, come unstuck through bad management. Bad management has been running a lot of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think if you look at the um, jump swim school, great idea. Overexpansion too quickly, probably undercapitalized. And then there was the, the business model required the, the payment up front and then the franchisee had to wait for approvals to uh, finding a site, getting approvals for the site. Uh, so there was quite a delay. And then um, people were in financial distress, so jump upped in in some cases and agreed to take over the rent. And I think you, you're probably going to find when they investigate the, the financial situation, it was Peter was paying Paul. So, you know, franchise A had, had um, paid the money and then franchise B would end up, some of their money would end up paying for franchise, franchise A's um, progress and, and on it goes until the whole thing is, uh, looks like it's collapsing. But, uh, I mean, the retail food group particularly was in all so- trouble for all sorts of issues, weren't they? Ah, oh, yes. There was the, um, the forcing to buy products in, I think it was cans from um, an interstate producer. Just dumb, you know. Why would, you, why would a franchisor make a franchisee do that? That's, that's just dumb. There was all sorts of capital. I, I, I haven't got access to the, to the financials, but as I understand it, there was massive, massive growth and acquisitions, which, the benefit of hindsight, they couldn't, uh, couldn't afford, and probably at the time they should have realised they couldn't afford, which gets that, um, that, that grip financially in strife. And, of course, there were issues about them breaking the law as well. Yes, yes. That's, that's a technical issue, uh, that they should have complied with those um, laws or regulations, and, and, and they didn't. And of course, that's to the uh, franchisee's detriment. Well, I mean, the big question I have to ask you is how typical is the retail food group of the industry? Look, I, I, I've got to say it's atypical. It's very high profile, obviously, but there's lots of franchises which are run really well. I mean, look at McDonald's, one of the probably you know, one of the leading businesses in the world, does have a franchise model. So that's a contrast of a really, really well-run business where the interests of the franchisor are taken as the interests of the franchisee. They both do well. And I think the, when you get a franchisor trying to run a business in their interests and don't accept the franchise got the franchisee's got the same interest that's when you got uh, that's when you got some problems and that's where i think you see things falling over where you got a franchisee who who um, isn't treated properly by the franchisor who is just there to rip money out you know well i mean obviously it's a huge issue because a parliamentary inquiry has called for new laws greater enforcement powers and penalties i mean the question is is that going far enough Look, that's, that's, the inquiry, I think, came up with some, some pretty, uh, pretty valid points, but fundamentally, you can't legislate against dishonesty. You can punish dishonesty and you can punish breaching the rules, but by then it's too late. The franchisees lost their money. If the company goes belly up, well, 
bingo. If if the directors were trading insolvent and, and they're bankrupt, well, there's, there's no recovery. Uh, and I'm um, helping franchisees and franchisors in dispute resolution between them. And, but if the franchisor's gone broke, well, no amount of penalties is going to um, is going to change that. The I think one of the important things I've seen uh, recommended was disclosure of what what we call churn and burn, where you've got an unsuccessful franchise business as part of a chain. Someone will buy it, uh, it'll lose money. Uh, the franchisor will take it over usually, and then it'll be resold, and they'll take it over and resold again. And there's very little disclosure about that, and that's burnt quite a bit of people, uh, quite a, a few people. I've had some cases like that where there was no disclosure that, uh, of the history, no proper disclosure, and that's one of the parliamentary recommendations that I think is, is very, very helpful. With an overview of, uh, you've read the report, you've uh, been working in the industry for years, what's wrong with the system? I guess business ethics, a franchisor, a good franchisor, firstly runs their business well and their ethical position is, I'm here to do well and I only do well if the franchisee does well. So it's more like a partnership. And if there's that ethical position entering it, then things are going to work out. That can't be legislated. That's just in the person. The other thing which is difficult to legislate is uh, we do see franchisors uh, being undercapitalised and expanding too quickly and in a way which is not manageable, which I think applies to the jump um, situation. Again, that can't be legislated. And it comes down to franchisees making very, very uh, rational decisions with open eyes about those sorts of things. But again, it's hard to legislate that. It's very, very hard to determine if a franchise always going to run the business well when it's relatively new. So I, don't, I, I really don't know if there's an answer there. Businesses, you know, for hundreds of years have done well and some haven't done well. And uh, I guess the best advice you could give someone, invest, give someone investing in a franchise is to do your homework. I've had franchisees who've got starry-eyed and they've gone, oh, you know, this is a great opportunity. And they haven't had business experience and they haven't really gone into it with their professional advisors and, and, and spent the money on, on good accounts, experience accounts, and spent some money with good lawyers who are experts in the field to have a close look and make sure things are going okay. We do see that a lot. People, inexperienced people, people who might have a super payout or... Um, they may have a redundancy and they'll, they'll just get starry-eyed about rushing in and buying a franchise without doing the proper homework, uh, proper due diligence. That's uh, an area we do see a lot of problems with. So your, your big tip for franchisees is do lots of due diligence. Absolutely. That, that's the key. Get professional advice. And um, I, I've, I've got a couple of cases at the moment where franchisees have done things on the cheap and, and they've got the wrong results. Um, they hadn't been advised properly. And there were some professional advisors uh, who, who were in the, in, the, in the scope of the claims. They need to have uh, due diligence done by very experienced accounts and advised by very experienced lawyers, that's number one. And just simple things like talking to as many of the other franchisees you can openly because you do get the, um, the background and, and I've had some cases where that's happened where they, they've proceeded 
with starry eyes against the advice of other franchisees. The position of your franchise is very, very important as well. Some franchisors will push people towards a position that might not work. I, I had one case where there was a, a, a position recommended by the franchisor which was hopeless on any view of it, but they didn't, the, the franchisee going into it didn't go around and look at the other franchises, work out what their demographics were, what their, in some cases, what their walk past traffic was, and they were put in positions by the franchisor which were completely different to the successful ones. So I think really having a close look at the other franchises that are operating and making sure the one you are purchasing is, is a similar framework to the successful ones after speaking to the franchisees directly. Well, Rob Brighton, that is very good advice and it's been fascinating to talk to you and uh, thank you very much. I think, I'm sure everyone will appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. And now let's talk to Rabobank economist Michael Ivory. Well, Michael, uh, clearly the market has uh, been responding to the coronavirus uh, threat. It's uh, Clearly it's been underestimated uh, and it's affecting all the economies, including China's, the world's second biggest economy. What's your assessment of it? Well, obviously it's a very fast-moving situation and things can change day by day depending on the information that we get. All I can say is that from the very outset of this, we were extremely sceptical of the very, very mild market reaction and mild official reaction, at least outside China, was justified. And indeed, if you look, you've seen in the past 24 hours markets hit quite severely. Uh, the bond market in particular is now pricing for recession in many countries uh, and equities finally crumbling. As they come to realize what we were arguing is, A, that China is being hit by this harder economically than the government wants to admit, uh, and that growth will not just suddenly rebound back to the magical 6% level that they are obsessed with. But secondly, because of the problems in China, you're going to have a, a domino effect across supply chains, where companies all over the world are not going to be able to get the parts that they need to physically produce the goods that they then sell on or sell to consumers. And as a result, you're going to have an absolute lockdown, logistically, spilling all around the world once stocks run out. Uh, that seems to be almost inevitable. And that was, of course, before we saw the virus leap to South Korea, uh, Iran, and Italy, which suggests that we are more or less, even if the WHO won't call it so, in a global pandemic of some sort involving lockdowns all over the place, uh, the cessation of business travel and, and, and tourism etc., etc., and further exacerbation of supply chains. So it's really hard to see how this is anything other than very, very bad news for everyone. Well, of course, one of the uh, problems, of course, is that China, Chinese firms are inextricably linked to very complex supply chains. If the supply chain disruptions persist, where does that leave other businesses? Well, this is unprecedented. And when you talk to most economists, they have a, uh, you know, a standard toolkit of understanding how the economy works, uh, what kind of shocks it can experience, and what the, the outcome of those shocks will be. What you have here is unprecedented in terms of the global scale of it, and also in terms of the fact that it's both a demand shock and a supply shock. It's a demand shock in that people just aren't buying things anymore. You have panic buying of some things and total cessation of purchases of other things because everyone's deciding just to stay at home or they're being told to stay at home and, and not travel. 
and you have a supply shock because suddenly businesses can't get hold of component X or widget Y or, or input Z. How do you compute that? It's almost impossible to accurately calculate just how bad the damage is going to be. But it should be an absolute no-brainer that everyone is going to be swept up in it somehow. Because even if you're not, your neighbor may be, or his neighbor, or her neighbor may be, at which point it still blows back to you. And really, at root here, what this crisis is underlining is how fantastically, magnificently stupid globalization was as an idea. Because you build an entire pyramid uh, of just-in-time, very, very complex supply chains centered on China, more or less, for most people, or in Australia's case, providing inputs into a China-centric global supply chain. And then the whole thing, of course, is massively fragile if anything ever goes wrong anywhere. So we're constantly pricing for perfection, which is just insanity when you consider that in the long run, perfection doesn't tend to last that long. But, you know, unfortunately, that's the paradigm we've built the global economy on the back of. Well, we have a problem uh, because we're going to have to rely on policymakers to clean up the mess. Well, we are doing. We have been since the global financial crisis. Since the global financial crisis, governments have done very little in most places, apart from in China, which uh, is perhaps a country that everyone will be uh, looking to copy in the near future. But we've been relying on central banks. I mean, Australia, of course, the Reserve Bank of Australia have been slashing interest rates uh, consistently while constantly telling us that everything's fantastic and the you know, the wonderful upturn is just around the corner as rates move lower and lower and lower and lower. I mean, that's, uh, you know, a, a double think, you know, well in terms that every central bank everywhere has been copying. The question I have to ask, and uh, I think I know what the answer is myself as I'm asking it, is are lower interest rates really a cure for a deadly virus? Are lower interest rates really a cure for having your supply chain disrupted so you can't get hold of the key components? Are lower interest rates a cure for everyone staying home and not buying anything? And the answer is no, no, and no. It's, it's a nonsense to believe that central banks are going to be able to get us out of this were a worst-case scenario to unfold in terms of this virus really getting much uglier. Now, I don't know if it will or it won't. I mean, we can hope that lockdown may manage to limit the damage at this stage. Um, but, you know, if it were to get worse, I simply don't see what the RBA, for example, is going to do about it. Uh, or the Fed, or the ECB, or the Bank of Japan, or the People's Bank of China. They can provide uh, infinite liquidity to companies that haven't got a key component without which they have no business. They can provide infinite liquidity to households who don't want to spend it because they're not going out. Uh, it does nothing. I noticed the uh, Central Bank of China today was announcing they were cutting interest rates. But uh, I can't see that helping at all. Well, it won't do. I mean, having said that, within China, we've seen articles suggesting that you know 85% of Chinese businesses, most of which are, of course, small, as in every country, uh, are going to go to the this month if they don't manage to get liquidity injection. So what you will now have, almost certainly in China's case, and maybe that's a model others will follow, is a central bank providing virtually free liquidity and in, in infinite amounts, you know, in tranches, to large banks or state banks in China's case to then extend to small companies to say, well, don't worry, here's a larger overdraft, here's a larger overdraft, here's a larger overdraft, you know, here's a liquidity facility, to basically allow them to keep kicking the can down the road. Now, that will, as we have seen post-GFC, keep everything at least in a holding pattern for now. Fair enough. What's going to happen when we emerge from that? What's going to happen, let's say, if it's three months, four months, five months, six months? And again, nobody knows. I'm, I'm drawing a, a relatively worst-case scenario with that time frame. And you're a small company, like a small restaurant or a small business, and you've been offered you know, more and more liquidity extensions, more and more delays on, on loan repayments, et cetera, from the bank. When you come back, back to business in the next number of months, 
you've got a much larger debt load. Uh, the large banks have got a much larger debt load, particularly for all the small companies that went under and those are actually now non-performing loans. And consequently, the central bank balance sheet is, is riddled with, with damage. How are you going to get out of that? Well, the answer, obviously, is you're going to monetize it. They're just going to print their way out of it. Um, now, will that be highly inflationary? Probably not in our current environment, but it's certainly not good for the currency for anybody who does it. Um, you know, there are already lots of questions being asked about how our financial system is working globally anyway, uh, alongside how the global economy is working. And this virus is likely to massively accelerate the, uh, the pace at which those kind of questions are being asked uh, and how existential they become. So, you know, we're heading for really, really uncertain territory uh, and multiple fronts. And, and the one thing I can assure you is that central bankers thinking there, who already, by the way, can't get inflation right. The RBA hasn't managed to get inflation right. They can't get unemployment right. What, you know, what in, on earth makes them think they can sort out a virus as well? And, uh, and the worry is that the bond markets are now forecasting recession. Uh, they are. Uh, we already, prior to the virus, had penciled in a mild U.S. recession at the end of this year, which would have dragged us into a technical global recession, which, by the way, just means global growth, uh, you know, somewhat below 3%. That's already a, uh, you know, a, a territory that would consider to be a global, global recession because most of the emerging markets generally grow much faster than developed markets. So global growth doesn't have to be negative to be a recession. That, that was pre-virus. If you now throw the virus into the mix, it's a no-brainer that you're going to be looking at a recession. I mean, China, for example, may be saying, well, they're still going to grow maybe 6% this year, and the IMF is 5.6. I think that's a nonsense. I mean, they can, on paper, grow that level because China controls its GDP completely. They can just basically borrow vastly more, again, via the magic of the central bank, and build more empty buildings that aren't needed and more infrastructure that isn't going to be used. Uh, and they can do that, fine. But that doesn't really tell you anything about what the actual underlying economy is doing, uh, you know, or how that debt will ever be paid back in the future, other than monetization. So, yes, everywhere you look, uh, there are, you know, red lights flashing, suggesting that this could be, uh, you know, the very, very strong breeze, which blows over what was a frankly rather feeble little upturn at the beginning of 2020, um, which does then push us towards a genuine global recession. Well, that's a worry, and uh, so we'll be watching the uh, next quarter with a great deal of interest because uh, we would predict it would contract quite sharply globally. Well, I'm not sure. Uh, we, obviously, we won't get those data until well into Q2, so that's several months away before we have those numbers officially recorded. And then, then of course, the instance that we have to pay most attention to is what are the Chinese numbers, and we have to ask ourselves, are the Chinese numbers going to actually reflect anything worth listening to? Uh, because there are already question marks over the quality of Chinese data. One wonders what they will allow to be seen. Um, of course, you can track Chinese numbers in real time. You can look at air pollution, coal usage, steel demand, uh, traffic congestion, uh, passenger flights, uh, property sales. There are any number of kind of leading indicators that you can look at in real time. And they're all absolutely fascinating, suggesting that you know, Q1 GDP is hugely negative quarter on quarter, uh, and maybe only slightly negative year on year because of the the base effects of, uh, you know, three, three quarters prior to that going up and up and up. Whether that'll allow, them, allow the world to, to actually see a really weak Q1 remains to be seen. But in other countries where you've got more honest reporting uh, or, or more transparent reporting, yeah, the numbers are going to be ugly. I mean, South Korea, for example, if they can't get this uh, outbreak sorted out very easily, it's going to be very bad indeed. Uh, Europe's already on the edge of recession before anything uh, like this had started to occur. And the U.S., I think, will be the biggest laggard, and I would imagine... 
you know, they'll be the, the last holdouts, but eventually I'm sure they'll get dragged in too. Well, uh, Michael, that is quite alarming, and uh, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome, and I hope both you and uh, all listeners uh, stay safe and do remember to wash your hands regularly. <laughs> thank you, Michael. So what's happening in the news? Well, factory inactivity in China fell at a record rate in February as manufacturers closed their operations to contain the spread of the coronavirus. The country's official measure of manufacturing activity, the Purchasing Managers Index, dropped to 35.7 from 15th in January. It shows the virus is having a bigger impact than the financial crisis that shook the world last decade. Chinese manufacturing has fallen even more than it did in the global financial crisis. The data also suggests that factories are struggling to find enough workers PMI figures, calculated with data from monthly surveys of private sector companies, are a key indicator of a country's economic health and can move financial markets. China makes up a third of the world's manufacturing and is the world's largest exporter, so this PMI drop, well below analysts' expectations, will have a knock-on effect on other countries. Restrictions in place in the so-called factory of the world have also affected companies such as Apple, Diageova, Jaguar Land Rover and Volkswagen, which rely on China's production and consumer market. The big question now is how quickly factories can return to normal. Many are dependent on China's 300 million migrant workers, a third of whom are still not working because of quarantine rules. According to Bloomberg Economics, Chinese factories were operating at 60% to 70% of capacity this week. It is expected that China's economic growth will take a significant hit in the first half of this year because of the impact coronavirus has had on business and spending in the country. And the World Bank and the IMF had set aside emergency funding for countries to fight the fast-spreading coronavirus as the OECD warned that the outbreak could more than halve global economic growth this year. The bleak forecast from the group of wealthy nations, which would constitute a global recession, has led to the promises of action from central banks and other international institutions seeking to limit the economic damage. In a joint statement, the heads of the IMF and World Bank said they had prepared their emergency lending facilities so that no country or health system should be short of funds to fight the disease on their soil. At the same time, Fed Chair Jerome Powell said during a press conference that the US economy remains strong, but the virus outbreak will weigh on activity for some time. And the Australian economy could be plunged into recession if the coronavirus outbreak goes global, with as much as 8% carved from growth over a year, according to new modelling by the economic expert Warwick McKibben. McKibben, whose previous work on the economic impact of disease includes examining the impact of the 2002 SARS pandemic, has modelled the effects of a range of COVID-19 infection scenarios on growth in Australia and around the world. He said that if the disease went global, it would carve as little as 2% from Australian growth, but this would still be enough to send the economy into recession, given that GDP increased by just 1.7% in 2019. In the worst-case scenario, where the disease spreads aggressively and kills 3% of patients, Australia's GDP would plunge 7.9% in the first year before quickly bouncing back. McKibben, a professor at the Australian National University and a former board member of the Reserve Bank, cautioned that his results were very sensitive to the assumptions used, including government responses. And the US Federal Reserve jumped into the Reserve Bank's slipstream, slashing its benchmark interest rate in an emergency move to bolster the economy amid the coronavirus outbreak. 
The Fed's Open Market Committee lowered the range for the world's important policy rate by half a percentage points to between 1% and 1.25%. And hours before, the Reserve Bank of Australia slashed interest rates to a record low of just 0.5% as it seeks to contain the economic fallout from the escalating coronavirus crisis. It foreshadowed it would cut again if necessary. And Australia's GDP numbers has the economy growing 0.5% in seasonally adjusted chain volume terms in the December quarter 2019, and a weak 2.2% through the year. And ANZ Australian job ads gained 0.7% for the month in February, but is still down 10.2% for the year. In trend terms, it declined 0.4% for the month and 12.1% for the year. And Australia's current account was again in surplus in the fourth quarter, but fell to $1 billion from the revised $6.5 billion in the third quarter. The decline in the surplus reflects the trade balance falling from $19.9 billion to $13.9 billion. And building approvals have fallen to the lowest monthly total in more than six years, as consents for units and townhouses in Victoria plummeted. A 15.3% seasonally adjusted monthly fall in dwelling approvals in January meant 1,700 fewer homes were given the go-ahead compared to December. The 13,016 approvals was the lowest monthly total since 2013. And consumer confidence fell 3.2% last week, driven by weakness in economic conditions. The index is now at a five and a half year low. Current economic conditions saw a significant decline of 16.6%. In percentage terms, the downturn was the largest since January 2009. Future economic conditions declined by 2.9%. Both the subcomponents are well below long-term averages. And Australia's housing boom is back in full swing, with prices in Melbourne reaching a record high and Sydney not far behind. Property values in the eighth state and territory capital surged 1.2% last month, according to CoreLogic Inc. data released on Monday. The upswing in prices, which started mid-2019, has already recouped most of the losses for a near two-year swoon as record low interest rates and looser borrowing standards sent buyers flocking back to the market. In Melbourne, Australia's second most popular city, home prices jumped 1.2% last month to surpass the previous peak reached in September 2017. Home values in Adelaide, Brisbane, Canberra and Hobart also hit new highs. Sydney posted the biggest monthly gains with home values climbing 1.7%. At current rates of growth, prices are entrapped to recoup all of their 15% peak to trough decline and reach a new record by the end of May, CoreLogic said. And Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison has hinted strongly that investment tax breaks for business will form part of the coronavirus stimulus package citing the need to lift business spending as one of three priorities for boosting the economy once the crisis has passed. In a package that will be bigger than envisaged last week when Mr Morrison first flagged economic assistance, the Prime Minister said the focus of the measures would be jobs, cash flow and investment. And two-thirds of Australian SMEs have been directly or indirectly impacted by the recent bushfires, with business disruption, higher insurance and other costs and lower customer confidence cited as key factors keeping business owners awake at night. More than 70% of small businesses say the fires will continue impacting their business over the next three months, according to a new report released by NAB. 
Owners of utility and wholesale trade businesses expect to be the most affected over the next three months, at 81% and 79% respectively. Approximately 75% of both the transport and storage sector and agricultural businesses say they expect to be feeling the effects of the bushfires for at least 12 months. And the fires have affected the numbers in this profit season. Company profits posted a weak headline result down 3.5% for the quarter, following a decline of 0.6% in the second quarter. And the coronavirus has also affected Australia's manufacturing sector. The Australian Industry Group Australian Performance of Manufacturing Index fell a further 1.1 points to 44.3 in February, its lowest result in almost five years, and the first time the index has recorded four consecutive months of contraction since 2014. Readings below 50 points indicate contraction in activity, with the distance from 50 indicating the strength of the contraction. While the majority remain concerned about drought, weak demand from the construction sector, and a general slowdown in the economy, coronavirus emerged as a concern for respondents for the first time in February, impacting negatively on the exports of Australian manufactured goods. And small businesses affected by the coronavirus will be able to defer tax debts in the same way as firms hit by the summer bushfires under a government plan to formalise eight-week deferrals for the business activity statements of companies squeezed for cash. Scott Morrison has also asked for access to small business loans and grants to be rephrased and reviewed to improve delivery of financial help to small firms suffering as a result of the bushfires. And Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison has personally spoken with the bosses of Coles and Woolworths seeking assurances their supermarkets will not run low on essential supplies as panic buying begins to break out across the country. Australian supermarket shelves are being stripped of supplies due to coronavirus concerns. Toilet paper, hand sanitizer and face masks are among the items most in demand. Woolworths has applied a four-pack limited to purchase of toilet paper as a panic buy and sparked by the growing coronavirus crisis empties supermarket shelves across Australia of household staples. Mr Morrison said he had also asked the ACCC to relax restrictions so Coles and Woolworths, if necessary, could join forces to guarantee essential supplies. The Prime Minister urged people not to panic, saying supplies were guaranteed. He said everyone should exercise common sense and rely on official information sources, not internet rumours and speculation. And the world's second biggest insurer, Swiss Re, says climate change is already resulting in a new world of weather uncertainty that will push up the cost of insurance in Australia. The Swiss firm, which underwrites risks for Australia's major general insurers, last month reported that catastrophic events in Australia last year had contributed to a total catastrophe loss of US $2.3 billion, that's $3.5 billion Aussie. Mark Senkevitz, Managing Director of Swiss Re's Australia and New Zealand operations, said the reinsurer was concerned by an apparent upward trend in secondary perils, events such as bushfires, hailstorms and extreme heavy rain. Primary perils are earthquakes and cyclones. And after 85 years of operation, National News Agency Australian Associated Press, or AAP, will close its doors, with about 500 job losses at the Newswire service. AAP is owned by Nine, News Corp Australia, the West Australian and the West Australian Community Media. Many companies all around the world have faced disruption amid falling revenues. AAP provides a range of services to media companies including newswire, sub-editing and photography. Chief Executive Bruce Davidson on Tuesday said the business was no longer viable in the face of increasing free online content. The service will close on June the 26th. And Harris Scarf 
appears set to change hands for the sixth time in less than 20 years after homewares retailer Spotlight Group clinched a deal which could see most of the department stores chains remaining 44 stores continuing to trade. Spotlight, owned by AFR rich listers Maury Freyd and his nephew Zach Freed, has been granted exclusive rights to negotiate an acquisition by Harris-Scarf's receivers, Deloitte Restructuring Services Partners, Vaughan Strawbridge, Catherine Evans and Tim Norman. They hope to finalise the sale by mid-April, conditional on landlord consents. Harris-Scarf went into voluntary administration and receivership in December, two weeks after being sold by greenlit brands to private equity firm Allegro Funds. If the sale goes ahead, it will save jobs of as many as 1,300 Harris-Scarf staff and enable hundreds of suppliers, including PAS Group's Design Works, Haynes Brands, Linen House, Sunbeam, Remington and Javoni, and landlords such as Stockland, Centre Group and Vicinity to continue to trade with a retailer. And years of drought have wiped nearly $13,000 off farm incomes, and the coronavirus outbreak poses a significant short-term risk to valuable Asian export demand, according to national commodity forecaster ABEARS. It shows farm incomes fell on average by 8% for the year, with some incomes close to zero this year. The drought and coronavirus take the majority of the blame. With bushfires affecting certain regions in its latest outlook, ABEARS found billions of dollars have been stripped from the farm sector in recent years, falling from a record high of $63.8 billion in 2016-17 to a forecast $59 billion in 2019-20. The total volume of farm production has also tumbled, down 18% from the 2016-17 record. It shows farm income fell by 8% between 2018-19 and 2019-20 to an average of $150,000 per farm. That is 4% below the 10-year average of $158,000 per farm. And Australia's smallest state seeks to benefit from its abundance of hydropower generation and the falling cost of large-scale production from renewables to make emissions-free hydrogen for export to Asia. Hydrogen projects are being mooted around Australia with a 2018 government report estimating that the industry could be worth more than $1 billion to the economy annually by 2030. The Tasmania State Government's Hydrogen Action Plan includes a 1,000 megawatt renewable hydrogen plan, as well as funding for concessional loans to promote further assistance. Tasmania's reliance on hydroelectricity, which makes up the bulk of the generation on the island, meant it could produce renewable hydrogen as much as 15% cheaper than other parts of Australia, according to the report published on Monday. And the federal court has ordered pharmaceutical giant Johnson & Johnson to pay almost $2.6 million in damages to three women implanted with faulty pelvic mesh implants. A class action involving more than 1,350 women successfully sued Johnson & Johnson last year. Hundreds of women have suffered serious and debilitating side effects from the company's pelvic mesh implant. The court is yet to make full orders on the case. The mesh devices have left hundreds of Australian women with serious side effects including chronic pain, infections and the inability to have sex. The court found Johnson & Johnson were negligent, driven by commercial interests and failed to give appropriate or sufficient remedial action once it knew of problems with the implants. And the profit reporting season is winding up. Harvey Norman blames bushfires and extreme weather for a subdued Christmas period as retailers' first half profits slipped by 4%. Harvey Norman reported net profit of 213.59 million for the six months to December to 31, with its overseas ventures outperforming local operations. Bega 
reported a 17.3% surge in first half export revenue to $230 million on the back of the first full, full December half impact from Koroit, strong demand and better prices. Total revenue climbed 14% to $741.2 million. Earnings at Costa Group landlord Vital Harvest Freehold Trust crashed 29% in the six months of December as it due an almost biblical period of drought, bushfires, hail and pestilence. The trust, which owns $276 million of citrus and berry farms leased to the ASX-listed fruit and vegetable producer, reported funds from operations of $6.7 million for the half year compared with $9.5 million for the corresponding half the year before. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Tiffany Bova, Global Customer Growth and Innovation Evangelist at Salesforce. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruen about creating citizens' assemblies. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a terrific week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, folks. I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.